Hello, friends. Welcome to episode 52 of the Drogado Podcast, a show featuring academics, authors, artists, and people who challenge the way we think and help us to grow in more empathy and compassion. In this week's episode, we're honored to learn from Dr. M. Daniel Carroll R. about his helpful new book entitled, The Lord Roars, Recovering the Prophetic Voice for Today. His book provides a thoughtful examination of the ethical concerns of the Old Testament prophets, Amos, Isaiah, and Micah, and how they continue to speak to us today. In this episode, Dr. Carroll talks with us about ways Amos, Isaiah, and Micah addressed injustice, hope, and worship. He talks with us about how to be mindful of idolatry in our churches. He shares ways church liturgy impacts our ideas of God. He talks about why churches are divided over social justice issues. He talks about the dangers of religion being co-opted by political parties. And at the end of the episode, Dr. Carroll discusses the social concerns of liberation theology in Latin America. Dr. M. Daniel Carroll R. is Scripture Press Ministries Professor of Biblical Studies and Pedagogy at Wheaton College and Graduate School. Here's our conversation. Well, Dr. Carroll, thank you so much for being on the podcast. I wanted to start by asking you a little bit about your new book and what led you to write it. It's actually been brewing for a long time. Um, I'm an Old Testament prof. And so that actually, <clears throat> the interest in all this stuff began when I was in Guatemala years ago, teaching. Uh, I was there during the time of the Civil War. And so uh, seeing issues of, of, of poverty and war uh, and the alternative down there at the time was liberation theology and their appeal to the prophets. And so I asked myself, you know, what would, what would a, a solid appeal to the prophets look like? And so that started that journey uh, years ago. And so when I was asked to give these lectures, which are the basis of the book, to me it was kind of like a, a nice excuse to kind of put down on paper what I'd been kind of thinking about for a while. So that's what you're seeing, uh, kind of, appropriating the, the lectures for, for just this desire to, to see what the prophets are actually telling us. As you were doing these lectures, how, how was it received? Well, it was kind of uh, interesting because it was during the COVID. So uh, normally there's three lectures. This is at the Nazarene Seminary in Kansas City. But because of COVID, they, it was only two given on the same day. So it was all virtual. But, uh, so, you know, you can't really gauge the audience real well. <laughs> uh, I mean, there was, you know, the chat. Yeah. Whatever, you know, so, uh, but I think it was well received. At least the chats were, were, you know, asking good questions. And, and I know the, the people who helped host it uh, appreciated it. So I think it was, I think it was well received. Well, it's, it's interesting that you started this during COVID because um, the topics you're touching on, which is dealing with, you know, injustice, social injustice, oppression of marginalized groups. You're giving these lectures during a time of COVID where we saw like a dramatic increase in racism, xenophobia, obviously Black Lives Matter and George Floyd. So that's a very interesting time to be coming out with it. I think it's very time appropriate. Yeah, and then of course now with the, the war in Ukraine, uh, the prophets are very concerned about war, 
because it's something they lived. I mean, with this country, it's always, you know, across the globe somewhere. But for them, it was a lived experience almost annually. So uh, that's why they talk about invasion and, and armies. And, and I talk about that in the book, too. So uh, besides kind of current U.S. internal politics, there's global issues. Uh, and of course, in the ancient world, Judah and Israel, they were at the mercy of uh, you know, mega powers, Assyria, in this time, particular time period. So, um, you know, we're, we're kind of internally focused about mm. internal issues, which they were as well. But there are these external threats that they were also very concerned about. So that resonates with today's world as well. Mm-hmm. What what led you to focus on Amos, Isaiah, and Micah? Well, those are the three kind of classic prophets that people go to when they talk about ethics. This goes back to the 19th century, actually. Mm-hmm. So uh, those were kind of the default. Uh, they're also dealing primarily with the 8th century, so they're all kind of in the same time period. And so they're dealing with like issues. And what's interesting is to see that they deal with them differently. Um, you know, they're different authors. And so they, they just work with what they see differently. So all of that, I think, helped. And then if you kind of keep it to three prophets, it makes it more manageable. And even with Isaiah, I'm not dealing with all of Isaiah. I'm not dealing with really uh, the first half of the book. So it, it makes it a manageable size of, of material to work with. Otherwise, it, it would just, you know, you start bringing in some of the other major prophets or the other minor prophets, and it just it just gets too unwieldy. And this way, people can kind of follow along, I think, a little bit easier. I'm wondering, like, how, how you view, like, because I feel like Amos and Micah are similar in a sense of they, they weren't, um, they were like, I don't know how to say it, like, they were like shepherds. Are they shepherds? Were they shepherds? Uh, not really. I mean, uh, because you'll see that word in the English translation uh, in Amos chapter one, verse one. But it's a very rare word. And once you start unpacking it, he probably was a he had sheep. But chapter seven says he also had cattle. And uh, he talks about sycamore trees in chapter seven as well, which is in a different location than he would have if for the animals. So he may have had several properties. He may have been a well-to-do kind of person. Uh, Micah is from a small town. Uh, You know, we don't know what he was involved in, but, but he is more kind of rural. And so, but you know, we don't know if he was a shepherd or not, but he was Mm -hmm. more rural where Amos, you know, had was probably a well-to-do. So they're different but they have some very common ethical concerns and commitments. And how would you say they compare with Isaiah? Well, they're shorter. (laughs) 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 That's an easy one. Uh, One of the things that's interesting about that is uh, Amos is from Judah, but he goes up to Israel, to the Northern kingdom. So he's kind of an outsider. That's why in chapter seven, the high priest will tell him to get out. Uh, Micah is from Judah. So he's speaking to Judah, but from the outside of the capital, so to speak, where Mike, whereas Isaiah uh, is at the royal court, 
So you're, you're seeing critique uh, from three people of Judah, one speaking against the North, which the North does not appreciate, and in the South from different vantage points. And so, uh, you know, the, the social ethical concerns overlap, but they're engaging it in a different kind of way. Where, I mean, you have Isaiah, you know, receiving this vision in chapter six, you know, maybe in the temple itself. I mean, he has face-to-face contact with the king and all this kind of stuff, which Micah does not have. And so that's an interesting uh, contrast there uh, between those two prophets. I'm kind of curious about the different ways that scholars kind of usually approach these prophets and how, how they um, usually handle them. And how I, am I different? Is that the question? Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, I think in a, in a couple of ways, um, an easy one, I think, would be I talk in one chapter about the role of the future. And oftentimes when, when scholars have talked about the future in these books, they do it in, in a descriptive sense that, oh, this is how they talk about the future, which is important. But I think what, what can be missed is that they're doing this for a reason. And the future actually becomes an ethical call, see? The future, the first, the, the most immediate future is an invasion of judgment. And beyond the judgment, there is this restoration. So the idea is, in light of the things that are coming, what should we do? How should we live? What should the government be like? What should religion be like? And, 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 and so you're seeing a different kind of focus, which I think is more textual than trying to fit uh, Micah or Isaiah into some kind of... Uh, layout of your prophecy chart or something like that, uh, which can be usually at a popular level. They'll, they'll do that kind of stuff. Or they're looking for, uh, is there a prediction about Jesus here? Mm. Which, you know, that's a good question, especially if one is a Christian. But, you know, when, when Micah or when Isaiah is talking and, and railing against their people, they're not going, oh, let's throw in Jesus here. Uh, you know, Jesus won't even come along for several centuries. I mean, it's a very immediate kind of message. So I think that would be one difference. The other difference is I think all three prophets focus very heavily on the religious life of the people. And so sometimes when I read about how scholars engage the ethics of these books, they talk about it, the socio-political and economic things, kind of separated from the religious component. When these prophets see them together, and, and I would suggest what they say is that if you don't get your ethics right, you don't have God right, and vice versa. So there's a lot at stake. I think each of them are fighting for a true vision of God, and a large part of this is centered on, on the ethics. If you don't have the ethics, then you don't really know God. This gets clear. I don't use this verse in the book, but... In Jeremiah chapter 22, he actually says this. He talks about caring for the poor and all this kind of stuff. And then he says, Does, is this not what it means to know me? Mm-hmm. And that's the same kind of idea that you find in these three prophets. If, if you don't engage these issues, you don't really know God. You worship an idol you call God, but it's an idol of your own creation. I think that's a really interesting point. <clears throat> I think in part of your book, you, you kind of mentioned that there's this movement towards idolatry where they're creating this Yahweh who's in the image of themselves. Yes. 
And that's what we do. I mean, we do it all the time. I mean, so what ends up happening oftentimes is if you go to a church in this country, in anywhere in the world, actually, and throughout human history, is that the God of the church you go to will tend to reflect your socioeconomic class, your your race. Uh, you'll sing the songs you like to sing. Uh, you'll have a, a preacher who will say the things you like to hear. And... But you're calling him Jesus, or you're calling him, you know, God, the Father, or something like this. But what you've done is you you just actually mirrored yourself, and so, and this is the God you you bow down to, you pray to, you give money to, you may even go on missions trips for, but he's actually your own creation. And, and this is interesting. I mean, in Amos, it's very clear in chapter four, because he mocks them. He says, you know, go to go to Bethel and sin. You would think he would say, you know, to sacrifice. And he goes, go to Gilgal and sin yet more. And he mocks the things that they're bringing. And then he says, for this is what you love to do. See, all of us have this religious impulse. And so we create the idols that that fit the religious impulse. And so if someone in church stands up and says something we don't like, we get angry. Well, that's what happened in Israel, too. You know, you get a message you don't like and, you know, you attack, you attack the preacher, right? So same thing. Dr. Carroll, like, how do we be more sensitive to those things? Like, I think about when I go to church and things you just said, like, how often does our culture um, impact what we hear, what we see at our church? How can we be more sensitive Christians? Yeah, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a very... Uh, complicated discussion because it has so many levels but you know so let me just mention a couple okay one would be to understand what uh, liturgy is for and i mentioned this in the book now every church has its own liturgy i mean when we think of liturgical churches we think of like anglicans or episcopalians or methodists or something but every church even if it's a pentecostal church has a liturgy they begin at the same time they have three songs and then they have you know, then they have the offering and then they have the preacher. I mean, it. everything follows a pattern. You end at the same time. I mean, it's a liturgy, mm -hmm. right? So every church is a liturgy. The question is, what is the liturgy actually doing? And who is the God of the liturgy? So you begin to say to yourself, how formative is this liturgy? Oftentimes we go into a church and it's preformative. You see, do I like the music? Does he have a good voice? Does she have a good voice? Did the preacher communicate well? You see, and it's about performance. Mm -hmm. But even if you're not aware of it, that is actually forming you in your view of God. So if we go into a church, and you may have been in these kind of churches, but you go into a church and it's the time of singing and people stand up and the person leading the singing is hitting notes and going off in ways that no one can, except if you're a professional. So you just stand there. Mm -hmm. You're not engaged at all. And, and, and that's doing something. I mean, it disconnects you from the whole worship experience. So I think the first thing is to begin to ask, you know, how is this forming me? I mean, who is the God? What is he like? See? Is he a middle class? Is he white? Is he black? Um, does he not talk about race? Does he not talk about economics? Does God not care about these things? Um, so that would be, you know, you know, one kind of thing would, would be begin to ask about the rituals and the formation part. The other part, and I don't know about your tradition, but I've seen this 
all over the country because I go to speak and everything, is that um, we don't use the Bible anymore. So no one takes a Bible to church. Uh, most churches have eliminated Sunday schools. So you've got a 20-minute sermon, 25 minutes, maybe longer depending on your church, and everyone just kind of sits there. No one has a Bible. So how are you supposed to get to know God and what God wants if you've basically eliminated the Bible, except for the preacher who has one? Um, so uh, it's it's almost like, uh, you know, ecclesiastical suicide. Mm. We're, 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 we're generating uh, people who don't know, don't really care. And if you gave them a Bible, they wouldn't know how to find anything. So if you're starting to talk about what God demands and you find this in the scriptures, but no one has the scriptures, well, then I don't know where you go from there. So I, I think what we need is, is really a whole rethinking of, of church and Sunday schools and things like this. Um, but because our religion in this country is very uh, consumer-oriented, you know, I've heard a pastor say, well, if we do the Sunday school, they won't come. And I'm going, that's the wrong kind of attitude. How do you make them come for their own well-being, for the well-being mm -hmm. of the church? Um, so it, it seems like in many ways we're, we're very counterproductive. And I think at least, uh, you know, I don't know where you are, but, you know, I'm at Wheaton College. What you're seeing is a lot of young people like migrating to Anglican churches because they're looking for something of substance. And I think they're kind of getting tired of yay, yay, rah, rah. And you walk mm -hmm. out and then so what? And so they're looking for something. And I, I think that should be a sign that we need to start really getting serious about doing church in ways that form a, a different kind of people. And right now, you know, Christians don't have a good reputation, and and some of it's well-earned, and we're not helping ourselves by doing church the way we do. A hundred percent. I was just thinking about one of my pastors. He was talking about, uh, he was talking to his elders about he wanted to do like a weekly prayer meeting where the church can get together and pray. And um, the feedback he was getting was like, well, there's not really a good, there's not really a good night to do prayer. Because like Monday night is this activity or Tuesday night, they have football. Wednesday is like middle of the week. And, you know, and he's like, he's like, there's not one day of the week that people can come to you and say, like, that's a good day to do prayer. <laughs> because there's always like, there's always something happening. Friday's not good because that's Friday night. Yeah, Saturday but, night's not good. <laughs> yeah. I mean, when I, I became a Christian in college, now, this was many years ago. Uh, but I remember... We, had, we would have church Sunday morning, and then we'd have an evening service, which was more casual, good time for fellowship afterward, and then we'd have Wednesday prayer meeting, or we'd have Wednesday Bible study uh, at the church. And so uh, that was very formative for me. Um, but, of course, now, you know, I was at one church. I won't tell you where or which one, but several years ago, I was, and the church had as a large church and they had atomic clocks so that every clock in the church was literally in sync to the second. Okay. And then, so in the, in the pulpit, you, you had a, in front of you, you know, was, was a clock, you know, against yeah. the balcony, which was ticking away. And then there was a clock on the, on the pulpit. 
that would change colors as you got closer to your level of time. I mean, it, it, and you're just going, this is crazy. Uh, it's, it was like more important to, mm. to be synchronized and to finish exactly when we said we would um, than some other issues that may be a little more weighty. Yeah, that's super interesting. I, I didn't think about the impact of time and how it forms the worship, especially in the age of COVID, where a lot of churches went virtual and the YouTube video channel would be on at a certain time and would end at a certain time. That's really interesting. I never thought about that. Yeah, I'll tell you a story. I tell this one because uh, it's it's a sad story. So this was before COVID when we were still in Denver. We've been here and that's our seventh year, I think. So anyway, so this is before we came. So my wife and I were visiting this one church and it was a smallish kind of church. And we go in and we sit on the third row. And so this guy, he's one of the elders, comes up to me with a box of donuts. And he says, do you want a donut? And I said, no. I said, uh, <laughs> why are you doing this? He says, well, if you sit in the first five rows, we give you a donut. That, that, that encourages people to sit toward the front. And if you want, there's coffee in the back. Okay. And I'm, this is this is all wrong. I mean, yeah. it's, everyone walks in with their cup of coffee and sits down. No Bibles, maybe a donut, and you just kind of sit there and watch what happens. Then when it's over, you get up and leave. Mm. Uh, you know, it just and that's church, and mm -hmm. and it's it it doesn't seem to be a good harbinger of health for the country. Uh, you might say, well, that's how we get people to come. But that's just, then we need to think of other ways to get them to come. And mm. if they don't come, then they don't come. But you, you don't give them this kind of pavlum and call that church and expect anything substantive to come out of it. How do you think um, if the prophets were here today, if Amos and Micah had walked into like a common church, what do you think their reaction would be? Well, I think it'd probably be what they the same kind of reaction, they'd probably be angry. Because what's the battleground is the person of God. Who is God? And it gets so bad in the Old Testament where God will destroy the temple. Uh, and even Jesus will take a whip, you see. Um, and this isn't the temple of, of Jerusalem. So uh, I think, and this isn't just a U.S. thing. I've lived in four different countries, and I've seen the same kind of thing in every country I've lived in. But um, it's the battleground. The, you know, the first question of the prophets is, who is, the, who is God? Is it Yahweh or is it Baal, Baal, right? Okay, you, let's say you say you give the right answer. Well, the next question is really the hardest question. Well, well tell me what, he, what he's like. That's the battleground. Mm. And uh, what you see them doing is fighting against false prophets, priests, and all this kind of thing but have a different view of, of the God that, that they are proclaiming. Yeah, it's interesting that question about who is this God? What is he like? Because that that gets into what your book does, what it looks at, well, how is, how is this God expressed in the culture? How are the sins of uh, systemic sins that are in culture are also reflecting like what you do and what you think? Yeah, and what you have in the Old Testament, as you do throughout history, is that, Religion gets co-opted by politics. 
So what you find in all these three prophets is that the national belief is that, that God supports their armies and supports their monarchy. And we've seen that throughout history as well, and even in this country, where you have kind of a nationalistic religion. And that's one of the ways that, that proper faith gets co-opted. Not only co-opted by the culture in socioeconomic and racial senses, but also by the politics um, and by the government, you see. And, and then what people will do is they'll defend both of them together, not realizing mm-hmm. that, that it shouldn't be that way. And it's never should have been that way, even in, in, in ancient Israel. Why do you think that there there tends to be this resistance um, or even an angry reaction from some Christian churches against uh, social justice issues where there is concern by many Christians and many churches about helping the oppressed, the refugee, um, but then you have others who maybe are like get angry about that sort of reaction? Well, sometimes it depends on the topic. Um, for instance, uh, people may be willing to give to poverty issues, but maybe not that interested in the immigration piece. Or what I find sometimes among progressive Christians, if that's the label you want to use, is they don't want to talk about abortion because they've committed themselves to the Democratic Party. And so it's a different kind of co-op, you know, co-optation. Mm-hmm. So it's a co-optation of the left, you see. Whereas in some churches, it's the co-optation of the right, you see. Right. So, uh, but they're both falling into the same trap. You know, basically their their stance has been determined by their political ideology and they've gone to find verses that support it. And um, so, you know, whether it's, we don't talk about certain issues, left or right, or sometimes they'll use the same kind of uh, really negative rhetoric in very very self-righteous kind of ways. I've seen that left and right too. Mm-hmm. So I, I think, again, it gets down to who is God, you see, and, 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 and the danger of, of being co-opted. Um, now, and it's been that way since the beginning of time. It's not unique to, to, to Christianity. What you find, for instance, in India is the rise of radical uh, Hinduism, nationalistic Hinduism in, in, in India. You see it in certain forms of Islam. You're seeing in the uh, Ukraine-Russian conflict where the Russian Orthodox Church has, you know, sanctified the invasion. I mean, so this isn't unique to Christianity or to this part of the world, it's it's a human phenomenon. It has been. If you go to the ancient world, the gods supported the national armies of Babylon and Assyria and all this stuff. So it's what humans do. We we use religion mm-hmm. uh, for our own our own ends, and we're we delude ourselves that we're doing it the right way. Yeah. So that that you bring up the danger of being co opted, and then also using. Our, inter- our interpretation of religious texts to push for causes that we want to hold to. Um, so what, what is your advice for those of us who are struggling with that? Those of us who may be leaning uh, towards one political party um, and maybe being a little bit blind or biased, how do we be more self-aware of the areas where we might be getting ourselves into trouble? 
I think it's it's just very important for us to distinguish between uh, partisan politics and the Christian faith. There will be times when there will be some overlap and other times not. And I, I because this country is, is so polarized politically, uh, you know, we'll tend, we'll, 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 that's how we will define ourselves. Uh, but I think, as my own personal view, is that Christians, we have to be nonpartisan. Uh, kind of a curse on both their houses. That they are mm-hmm. both have deep flaws. They have sinful leaders. We're all are sinners, but they have sinful leaders. They have agendas. They have compromises they have made to move into power. Uh, people are making money off of this thing. Uh, people are using legitimate social questions for political ends, and we need to be aware. You know, we need to, you know, to be as wise as serpents. You know, to use Jesus' words, and, and not and realize that we only have one King. You know, we only have one Lord. And it's not going to be the president of the United States or the prime minister of the UK. Uh, they're not Messiah. But if you watch the election cycles, which we're coming up to one, they're, they're, they're kind of what I would call uh, exercises and in, in, in messianic uh, mm. aspirations. I mean, you know, the person walks out on stage and the balloons go up and everyone's going, oh, this person will change the, the course of national and international history. Oh, no, they won't. Um, they'll be lying, they'll be cheating, um, compromising. That's how they got the power anyway. So I think we need to just begin to uh, to own up to the fact that, that no human king can fulfill what God would want, and we just need to do the best we can. And even if that means that working at the local level, because nationally it's going to be more complicated to remain you know, true to the compass at the beginning of the, uh, this discussion, you mentioned being in Guatemala and being there during the midst of a civil war and um, the church leaning into a liberation theology. Can you talk about, uh, before we go, a little bit about maybe the benefits of liberation theology and maybe any of the flaws or, or concerns that you have about that? Yeah, I would say that, that most people, when they talk about liberation theology, have read very little of it. They may have read one book or something. Um, I am very sympathetic to the social concerns of liberation theology. Now, what most people don't know is that the high point of liberation theology would have been the, the mid-70s to about 1990. Mm-hmm. So uh, today, you know, it, it really isn't around. I mean, it's, it's left a legacy. And even on the ground in Latin America, it was very much of a marginal movement. You wouldn't know that if you didn't live in Latin America. Most of the Catholic Church was conservative, traditional. Uh, most evangelicals were largely Pentecostal and not interested. Uh, so, you know, uh, a Peruvian missiologist friend of mine said something, uh, which is true. He said, liberation theology opted for the poor, but the poor opted for the Pentecostal churches. I mean, they, they weren't involved. So I, I appreciate liberation theology for its concerns. The other thing that I appreciate about it that they they realized that to, to speak into the reality, they had to use the social sciences. Now, they chose certain kinds of Marxism, 
And most people don't realize that they were actually very specific in what aspects and what kinds of Marxism they chose. But be that as it may, even if you don't agree with that choice, the idea of using social analysis to understand the context into which you are going to speak makes sense, and we can learn from it. And then the other thing that, that I appreciated was that they began to ask the question, if we are committed to our context, how does that change how we understand and how we do theology? And we're seeing in this country with, uh, let's say, the rise of uh, certain kinds of African-American theology, Latino, Latino theology. They're asking the same question, you see. If we take the concerns of our people seriously, how does that impact theology and how does that impact church life and the ethics of the church? And I think that is that was a great legacy. So uh, I appreciate some of the legacy. Some of them, again, last point, um, some of them opted, not all of them, but some of them opted for revolutionary violence. And this actually was an internal question, which wasn't translated into English so much because, you know, Latin America, so not everything was translated into English. But one of the questions was, what were the limits of the violence that we could use? Is participation in a revolutionary movement legitimate or not? And if so, to what point? Mm. And so uh, that's that's a very serious kind of question. You see, uh, will you pick up a gun as a Christian to change society? Mm. And that that was the question some of them were having. So again, one thing are the concerns. Another thing is the strategy. Was the strategy? A, a, a nonviolent one, and for some, it was not nonviolent. It was actually the choice for violence uh, and joining guerrilla groups. So the, I would disagree with that. So you got all this going on. So it's a large discussion, but I've kind of narrowed it down to just a few points. So I hope that's helpful. Yeah, it really is. It really is. Well, Dr. Carroll, I want to thank you so much for coming on the podcast and talking about your new book and a different way of looking at our, our prophets and how they speak to us today. So thank you so much. Well, thank you. Appreciate you having me on. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Dogato Podcast. As always, you can get the show notes, video links, and resources mentioned in this episode on my blog at mikedelgado.org. You can also get updates to new shows and get access to the full archive of past shows by following the Dogato Podcast on YouTube, Instagram, Twitter, and TikTok. And if you ever have suggestions for future topics or guests you want to hear from on this show, please reach out. My email is delgado at ucla.edu. Thank you so much for listening, and we'll chat more next time.